Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Parts of Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast. Today, we're going to look at the future of business education. We're going to peer into our crystal ball, uh, gaze into it, and imagine what business education will look like in the next five to 10 years. We've certainly seen a lot of disruptive change in the last couple of years due to the the pandemic. So my co-host, Caroline Diarty Edwards and Maria Wickvilla, will conspire with me uh, to uh, maybe forecast what other likely changes will occur in the near term. So I wanted us to think a little bit about how is business education going to change over the next five to 10 years? We've been through this period where there were major disruptions and faculty, many of whom, frankly, didn't want to have anything to do with online teaching, had no (laughs) alternative and basically had to start teaching at least by Zoom. Now, while remote instruction is not the same as designing from scratch an online course, it did familiarize a lot of faculty with current technology. And I think a lot of faculty came away from that experience quite favorably disposed toward teaching online. And so I wonder, you know, in this and many other ways, how it's going to affect the delivery of business education over the next five to 10 years. Caroline, you have some thoughts? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it propelled schools into the 21st century of technology well, not almost overnight, but certainly very rapidly in a way that would not have otherwise happened had it not been for the pandemic. And, you know, as we've mentioned before, educational institutions are not always the, 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 the first to embrace change and innovation, right? And um, faculty can sometimes be quite resistant to that. And Indeed. faculty can be very difficult to manage. And if they don't want to do something, they're not going to do it. So so it sort of compels people to embrace something that they might not otherwise have done. And I'm sure that's going to continue to be a big part of how um, business schools operate. So schools have figured out how to do this. Of course, you know, the, the, you, you will not replace the in-person interaction. And that's still going to be, you know, critical to the business school experience because so much of the learning is about, you know, getting to know each other and building those relationships and learning from each other. And it's still hard to achieve that in the same way online as you can in person. But schools have figured out that there is a lot that you can do online very efficiently in terms of, you know, some formats and some knowledge transfer that also gives students in different locations and and um, or professors in different locations the ability to to interact. So, so that I think that that's a very positive thing. That that you know it's another tool that schools now have at their disposal, a sort of pedagogical tool that will you know enrich the programs and make them more efficient and effective and 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 give everybody more flexibility in how they engage with their education. So, you know, definitely that's going to be an ongoing element to a different degree, right? And some schools will put a greater emphasis on this than others. And some schools will really make this a huge part of how they deliver their education and, and more of it will be online. But, you know, I, th- I think it's great that that there's sort of that blended learning has really become embedded in, in, in education now. Yeah, Exactly. And of course, this also affects the uh, growing acceptance of the online MBA. And while 
you know, we often talk about the Harvards, the Stanfords, the Whartons, the NCOTs, and London Business School in our podcast. The truth is that online MBA programs are growing by leaps and bounds, and more schools are entering the market. And if you look at, you know, the, one of the most disruptive programs around at the University of Illinois, where you can get an MBA online for $22,500, you know, they started six years a little more than 100 students in the first cohort. And now they are up to over 4,300 enrolled students in an online MBA. And I have to say, you know, over the years, I probably have interviewed as many as 50 different uh, of those students. And the quality is really surprisingly good. And they come from Fortune 500 companies. They come from, obviously, a lot of the tech companies where, you know, technology is is so uh, on the present that there's no thought or consideration that you would be getting uh, an inferior education if you got it online. So you're seeing more people get the online MBA. And I think that the online MBA, more importantly, is becoming more competitive, certainly with uh, part-time eating programs, with executive MBA, and surprisingly full-time MBA programs. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to that looked at full-time MBA programs at, at an NYU Stern, a Columbia, a Kellogg, or a Booth, and ended up in an online MBA program just because you know they might have been a little bit older than the open window for late 20s people, and they didn't want to expend the kind of money uh, that's required for an executive MBA. And they didn't want to go and do the evening grind where you have to go after work to, you know, a class uh, once or twice a week. And the flexibility of getting your MBA online was just ideal. And so they went that way and a lot cheaper because obviously there are no opportunity costs involved. So I think we're going to see over the next five, 10 years too a shift in the percentage of people who get an MBA and get it online versus uh, in an actual classroom. Now, the other piece of this is, you know, the employer acceptance of online education. All employers have largely had to uh, work with their employees remotely. And while a lot of people want to get back to work and actually go to an office and actually be able to socialize with their fellow employees, I think a lot of companies have discovered that, hey, you know, it actually worked. There wasn't a significant decline in productivity. In some cases, there was an increase in productivity among employees. And while we may have sacrificed some bonding, some, some culture, it kind of worked out. Maria, do you think that we're going to see greater acceptance of online education from the employer side? I think we will in theory and in execution, it actually puts a lot of pressure on these earlier people who were some of the pioneers to get the online MBAs, right? Because if they, if they get the online MBAs and they come to the workforce and they don't really perform that well, (laughs) right? That that negative, it's going to, it's not exactly going to be great for the branding of the quality of those programs. So I think as long as the people who are getting the online MBAs now realize that sort of, you know, all eyes are on them, so to speak, and, and if they go out there, but if they kick lots of butt, it's, you know, the, the proof is going to be in the performance. And if they can perform on par and contribute as much as the standard MBAs, traditional, the quote unquote traditional MBAs, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to really take off. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because if the early hires from some of these online MBA programs tend to be duds, 
uh, that's going to be a significant factor in overall acceptance. Uh, and, you know, and there are firms that, um, particularly in the accounting area, that have partnered with some of the major online MBA providers online and, and, uh, and getting their employees online degrees, which is also has obviously increased the acceptance of them. Now, the other implication for technology is on something that deans have been talking about for ages, but has never really materialized. And that is this concept of lifetime learning. Now, Caroline, I'm sure in all the years that you've been involved in business education, you've heard that term lifetime learning, lifelong learning over and over again. But in that, you know, it never really was meaningful in any significant way. Do, do you think technology is going to change that? Yeah, I think there is a greater expectation now among students and alumni that the schools will add value to their career, not just for the, you know, for that year or two years, but throughout their lives, right? I think the, the expectation is higher. And of course, you know, there's an awareness that you need to be constantly, you know, keeping your skills up to date and building your knowledge and, and, and you know, with a rapid pace of change, you need to keep up to date and, and the schools have a role to play there. And, you know, I, I've observed that as an alum at, at INSEAD over the past um, 18 months that when the pandemic started, the school started doing a lot more webinars for alumni with really interesting classes offered by professors and discussions and panels and so on. And that has been, that has dramatically increased over the past 18 months, the, the availability of those sessions and resources and so on. And, you know, it's a wonderful way for the schools to engage with the alumni as well and, and, you know, maintain that relationship, which is, of course, you know, financially very important for the schools because the alumni are such an important yes. so source of donations and, and financing. So, so you know, it's, I think it's a win-win situation if, if the schools can figure out how to do that effectively and not just the delivery of, of knowledge and, you know, enabling alumni to keep their, their skills up to date, but also... I see the schools offering more and more in terms of career support and um, alumni reaching out more frequently to the schools when they are sort of facing a, a, a transition in their careers, um, which, as we know, is, is going to be just more frequently the case, right? People are not going to have one linear career. They're most likely going to have um, many jobs and many different careers through their life. And so when those transitions happen, the schools also have an important role to play there in, in providing support and they're gearing up for that as well. And, and so, and, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's great for both, both sides because, you know, if the schools can figure out a way to do that efficiently, then it creates a lot of goodwill from the alumni and, you know, goodwill can often be translated into donations. <laughs> so. uh, indeed. <laughs> And, and, you know, the other aspect of this is uh, the perishability of knowledge. Uh, the world is changing so rapidly and primarily because of technology and the advances in technology and artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the greater need for business analytics, given the massive data sets that are available to businesses today. You know, it, I think that people are going to need uh, refreshers of one kind or another throughout the career to stay as relevant and to stay on top of things in a way that maybe they couldn't before. And to the extent that budgets and companies have been greatly diminished for training and development, you have the need for the school to step in 
and do this and the other beauty of, of the technology. And you can do it more cheaply because it is delivered by technology and people don't have to leave work, go to a college campus for a week, multiple weeks, several days, and miss out on work entirely. So that really adds to the experience uh, and the value of you know lifetime learning delivered by technology. What other things do you think could change over the next five to 10 years, Maria? Sort of building on off the last last thing, one thing that I was I was trying to think of, okay, what has changed over the past 10 years and what mm. therefore what do I think will continue to change? And I and this is sort of go on the topic of of the perishability of knowledge. I think the role of data analytics, you know, I think the amount of data that we have now on consumers and purchasing intent and everything. I mean, the data, even in, in fields that 10, 15, 20 years ago were not data-driven fields, like maybe HR or marketing or branding. We're living in an age now where there is just so much data available that can be cheaply collected, right? You know, a long time ago, if you wanted to do a market research study, we, you were looking at $20,000 to recruit the participants and have the focus group moderator sit in on the. And now you just do like a 10 cent, you know, quick online survey and you can start collecting tons of data. So I think, I don't think the specific tools, I don't think it's, it's really worth it necessarily for a school to devote a lot of energy teaching one specific data analytics tool over another. But I do think that now since data is so, and it's just going to keep growing in terms of availability, it's so available and it will continue to grow in availability. I think teaching those fundamental concepts of how do you, what do you do with huge data sets and how do you find the signal within the noise and, and all that stuff. I think that's something that perhaps, at least it certainly was not focused, a focus when I was getting my MBA. And I think it's just going to keep getting more and more important. Yeah, that's really true. I, I wonder if the new emphasis on recruiting diversity candidates is going to coincide with this test optional movement to lead to uh, not the de total demise of GMAT and GRE and admissions, but, you know, more schools recognizing that, look, if you're, if you're sitting there at Harvard, Stanford, NCI, and London Business School, and you have a candidate who has an undergraduate engineering degree from Cal Poly, from Imperial, from uh, MIT, from Georgia Tech, do you really have any doubts about that person's quantitative abilities? Or if you have a person who's a CPA or a chartered financial accountant or other equivalent criteria that, that clearly demonstrates the person is not going to have a problem with the relatively simple quant in an MBA program, do you really have to still require a GMAT or a GRE? I've always said that if U.S. News simply dropped that metric from their ranking, almost all schools would go optional, test optional overnight. Now, there is value in a GMAT or a GRE for someone who maybe doesn't have a great undergraduate GPA for whatever reason. Uh, it's a way for them to demonstrate that uh, you know, they can do a rigorous academics, an MBA program. But by and large, they're you know, it, it's, it shouldn't be one shoe fits all because different candidates come with dramatically different backgrounds, many of which clearly demonstrate that they have the ability to do the quant in a core curriculum. What, what do you make of that, Maria? Do you, do you think more schools are going to go test optional? I mean, right now you have Michigan, you have MIT, you have Indiana, you have UVA Darden, uh, and you have Duke this year among 
many, many others, but those are, you know, among the more prominent schools that are test optional. Yeah. I mean, I think I would, I would love to see more test optional just everywhere. Right. I think, I think the tests, as we've talked about, can be really valuable for certain, for certain students, but there's also no doubt that the more resources you have, the better you're going to do. I'm not saying you have to have lots of resources to do well, but if you have more resources, you'll probably do better than you would have otherwise done. And by resources, I mean the time to study a lot, the money to pay a tutor or to take an online course, you know, that sort of, that sort of thing. I, I think, you know, if someone who has more resources is going to do better than if they didn't. And so that to me is problematic. But then we also can't go like completely like there's no like we're not even going to look at the test because you do need to be confident that yes. when you put someone in your classroom or if you put someone in front of a recruiter, that they're not going to flail or embarrass themselves or the school in the process. I wish that there were a way to do like a, a sort of a, an on the spot. Like this is why I, I'm such a huge fan of the Kira talent interviews, right? These are the quick, yeah. you don't know what you don't necessarily know. I think it defeats the purpose. Some of the schools tell you in advance what the question is, which is silly in my opinion like what's the point of the whole what's like oh it's it's a surprise party but we've told you that it's happening and where and when (laughs) what surprise look surprise surprise oh i've known about it for five months um but but i think that way that when the schools use the kira talent platform well and for people who may not be familiar with it it's a platform where as part of the application process you log into a portal and it gives you you know say three random questions and you get something like 30 seconds to think and 60 seconds to respond uh something like that where you're getting a sense of who is this person on their feet in the sense where because some people might study for the gmat for three years and some people might study for three weeks but on the something like the kira talent platform which would would ostensibly make things a little bit more of an even playing field so i would love for there to be more like spontaneous and I don't have the answer for what that is, but I would love for there to be some sort of more spontaneous, equal playing field types of assessments. Yeah. And, and if you look at what's happened to undergraduate education, I mean, the entire Ivy League now has made the SAT and the ACT test optional. And the vast majority of U.S. schools, private and public, have made it uh, test optional. And a lot of the argument here is socioeconomic arguments where if you come from a disadvantaged background, you know, you're less likely to score well on the test. If you're female, even though you get higher grades at, in, at college, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, uh, you tend to score lower on these standardized tests. And unfortunately, because of rankings, they still tend to be over-indexed in admission decisions. But to the extent that the uh, undergraduate institutions have really taken a big lead on this, you, you got to think that it's going to uh, have a growing impact on graduate admissions over the over the near term, next five, 10 years, because you can't achieve significant breakthroughs on the diversity side if you're still over-indexing GMAT and GRE scores. Caroline, I'm sure there's a European perspective on this. I definitely think there is a role for, um, for, for te- test optionality, if that's the right word, but I, I also think that sometimes sometimes the wrong candidates choose to go that route, right? So um, sometimes people think that it's a back door to get into the school and you know, I, I don't have to show that I've got good academic credentials now to get into MIT. Right. And that's not the case. Nope. Um, and definitely. so, you know, I, I definitely think there's a role for, for that. And, I, and, you know, I welcome flexibility in the process. 
But unfortunately, what I sometimes see is that that candidates think that, um, you know, there's an easier way now to get into business school. And, you know, even though they could put the effort into getting a GMAT, now they're not going to do it. And it doesn't necessarily help them, right? So in some cases, you know, candidates would just be better off putting that effort in to to taking the test and, and, you know, enhancing their profile. And, 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 you know, especially if the undergraduate track record isn't stellar, right? Having a strong GMAT or a good GRE can really help their case. And right. it hasn't got easier to get into business school, right? Because, you know, it, just because Darden or, or MIT or Duke are offering some waivers, it doesn't mean that it's, it's got easier to get in. And, and, and so I think sometimes um, candidates sort of misread the, the, that situation. Yeah, that, that is true. Because if a school makes a standardized test optional, it does not mean that they're diminishing their admission standards. It means that you have to prove in some other way uh, that you can handle the quant work in the core curriculum. Uh, you're not just going to get a pass uh, on the test period. They're looking for other evidence, and otherwise you won't get a waiver. Um, so it's as simple as that. Any other ways in which we think business education is going to change? I wonder if the international schools are going to take an ever-increasing part of the best uh, applicants in the worldwide pool, or has that peaked? What, what's your take on that, Caroline? Yeah, I, I think that um, it will become a more of a global marketplace for talent in education. You know, the, the Trump years were not favorable to that, as we know, right? And so now there has been an increase in, in interest from international candidates. And, and um, so I think it will, that will, will continue. It will continue to be, there will be more mobility um, at all levels in education, at undergraduate and at graduate level. And, and so, you know, that, that's great for the schools that get access to, you know, this, this wonderful, diverse applicant pool. And I think something else that, that we're seeing and is that more people want to secure their place at graduate business school earlier rather than later. And so I think, you know, there will be a growth of the two plus two programs where people can apply whilst they're still in college in their undergraduate programs and secure their place at a top school. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the specialized masters will also grow because those are often programs that people can pursue straight out of undergrad. And, you know, I think that can be some serious competition for the MBA programs that young people don't necessarily want the uncertainty of going into the workforce with the hope of getting into a top school at a later date. If they can secure a place at a great school for, you know, an excellent program straight out of college, they may choose to do that and they may forego the MBA. And, you know, we discussed recently how the Harvard Law School is doing so well and, you know, increased application has a high application volume now than the business school. And I think that may be part of that trend that people are keen on, uh, on securing their spot at business school as soon as possible, right? And so if you can't, if they're not going straight into business school, then maybe they're going straight into another school or another program. Yep. Well, do you think we're going to see more schools reach gender parity? I, I'm sure we will. I mean, we're certainly heading in that direction and the schools have been striving for that for many years. So, yeah, I, I, I'm sure we will. Um, Wharton has obviously um, done, done very well there and I think the other schools will, will follow. Yep. 
Maria, any thoughts on that? No, I, you know, I think where the schools are more committed to reflecting, you know, not only what management ranks should ideally look like, but also acknowledging the fact that consumers and people with actual purchasing power, the, the faces of what those people are like is, is changing. And so it's, it's not just good from a social justice perspective, but it's good from a, from a bit, it just makes good business sense as well. So yeah, I expect it to continue as well. All right. So as always, expect more change. You may not like it. <laughs> I know we're, uh, many of us are creatures of habit and change is disturbing and disruptive, but uh, it is a part of life and it will be a part of business education over the next five to 10 years. So, hey, Maria and Caroline, thank you so much again for your smart and intelligent perspectives. And uh, for all of you out there listening, Thanks for tuning in. This is John Byrne with Poets of Quant. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast.